Welcome to Programming Love Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your host, Oli. This is a high-fidelity podcast where we meet passionate people and discuss programming. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from individuals from around the world on their journey and the joys and pains they experience along the way, so we can all learn and move forward together. This week I'm coming to you from Seattle, and before we started, I want to promote one event that I'm organizing. We're not sure if you heard yet or not, but GVM experts from IBM, Microsoft, JFrog, JetBrains, Oracle, Confluent, and VMware are gathering at Virtual's two-day conference JLove. It's being held online this year on December 4th, 5th, and as a gift to the community, the tickets are free. However, you must reserve your space to participate. Go to jlove.confi.care. The link will be in show notes. Thank you. And also meet my co-host, Anton. Hello. Hello. You skipped last episode, didn't you? Yes, I did. It's my fault. I was planning to travel and I did. Okay, nothing too serious, nothing about programming love. Just vacation? No, just vacation. That's good. Today we have a special guest, which I'm really proud to introduce, Martin Klepman. Martin is a researcher in distributed system and security at the University of Cambridge, the author of Designing Data-Intensive Application, fantastic book. Previously, he was a software engineer and entrepreneur at internet companies, including LinkedIn and Reportive, where he worked on large-scale data infrastructure, of course. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you. I have your book always close to me. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but, a delight. Yes. I actually, I think I've never read it from the beginning to the end, but I've read it all in different part of times because it's, I don't know, it's delightful, it's interesting. It's... It is written in a way that you're supposed to be able to jump back and forth and read it in whatever order suits you. So yes, I'm glad that worked for you. I have to confess I didn't read it through, but yeah, I was reading different pieces of the book and it was really nice to read. Which one is your favorite, Anton? Last time I opened it was in the beginning of June, so uh, two months since then. I don't remember exactly. I was actually reading the other book on databases, and uh, now it's a little bit intermixed in my head. Oh, I see. For me, it's encoding and evolution. Mm. I think that this is the clearest explanation of different protocols and why the versioning is important and things like that. Yeah, chapter four. That, that was originally a blog post, which I then took and expanded into that chapter of the book, essentially. But yeah, that was actually a nice example of the general approach I tried to take with this book, which is to try and dig into how stuff works until I really get to the bottom of it. And I realized that with stuff like protocol buffers or so, you know, it's not that much code. I can actually just go and read the code and figure out exactly what it's doing and exactly how it's encoding some data as a bunch of bytes. And once you see what that encoding is, that's actually really informative and you can then figure out better how to use it better based on that understanding. So it's, it's nice sometimes just to go down to the bottom of things and, and really understand how they work. Yeah. 
And you use example, Martin, your own name in the chapter to encode and decode. And I used that example in one of my talks and since I'm Scala developer, everyone thought it was Martin Odersky. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it was you actually. So great, Martin, currently you're a researcher, right? That's right, yes, I'm a postdoc at the university. What's the primary area of, like, what's the focus of the research that you're doing right now? So what I'm trying to do is make collaboration software better. And so in particular, you might know like Google Docs style real-time collaboration where several people can work on a document at the same time. I want to do that kind of thing, but without having to give Google all of our data. And so there are several like subparts of that part is, um, can we do collaboration in a way that if we send our data via somebody's server, via some cloud service, can we encrypt the data in such a way that at least that cloud service can't read the contents of all of our documents? Or even go further, can we do without a cloud service entirely? And can we do the collaboration peer-to-peer -peer in a way that still preserves the, you know, the convenience and the very good usability of tools like Google Docs where you, know, you don't have to email files back and forth, you can just work on them, edit them directly. So, so that's meaning that I would have a client software in my machine and you would have a client software in your machine. We don't have anything in between and then we can edit the same document and exactly. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is an, an approach we've been calling local first software. So the idea here being that local first means that the primary storage of your data is on your local device, on your own device, on your own hard disk. But at the same time, we want to keep the convenience of synchronizing across multiple devices, being able to access your files from anywhere, being able to collaborate easily with people. So we want both the data to live on your local disk so that you have ownership over it, so that you can work on it offline, but also have that real-time collaboration across different devices. And so that's an interesting challenge to bring those two things together. Actually, when we talk about this point-to-point -point collaboration, the first thing it comes to my mind is Skype in its early ages mm -hmm. when it was point to point, but there was like a software bug that a disaster that basically ended the era of point to point for Skype, but it was like more than 10 years ago. Do you remember what that disaster was? I remember them being peer to peer, but I don't remember the details. I wasn't a Skype employee, but what I had a lot of friends working there and uh, what I have learned I might be mistaking, I might be paraphrasing what they said. The way Skype operated as point-to-point -point software was that they used to have super nodes that were the clients on Windows machines only. Mm -hmm. And the software bug created some overload of the network, basically bringing the whole point-to-point -point network down. And in order to fix it, they had to start the fake super nodes on virtual machines in their cloud basically mm -hmm. and they could return back only when all the clients would be updated with the software fix mm -hmm. but you know users update whenever they want me they maybe never update yes. uh, after that bug fix basically they had to keep those super nodes up in their server which created kind of a hybrid mm -hmm. of point-to-point -point network but being operated centrally 
And as far as I know, when uh, a Microsoft acquisition happened, they started to move into this center server-based uh, messaging. Right. Yeah, it's, it is quite an interesting tension between the two. So we've done a bunch of experiments now with peer-to-peer -peer networking and actually making it work reliably is really hard because often you have it that it works fine on some people's networks and then you move to some coffee shop Wi-Fi or you move to some restrictively configured office guest network or something like that and suddenly it stops working and debugging why it's not working is almost impossible. So generally, if you have these peer-to-peer -peer systems, they do have to fall back to some kind of centralized server cloud-based yeah. communication model sometimes. Yeah, considering the time when, it, when Skype was created, 2005 or so, it was a huge innovation, I would say. Now I realize how huge it was. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you can get often better latency if you can connect the users directly. But that said, like modern CDNs have got very good as well at routing packets efficiently. So the reason we're interested in peer-to-peer -peer is mostly because if you're depending on a cloud service, you're depending on somebody continuing to pay the bills for that cloud service. And if somebody decides to shut down the service, then suddenly your software stops working and potentially you even lose access to all of your data. This is more of a problem in, in applications that store data on the server. Like something like Skype doesn't have much server-side storage. It, it has some like user authentication accounts. But that's about it. Like most of the, the data is transient and is just exchanged live between users. But you know, with your, your files, your notes, your documents, this is potentially a lot of data that you might accumulate over many years. And, and it might be quite critical as well. Exactly, it might be critical. And if you're using some software that was built by a startup and that startup shuts down, then suddenly, if it's cloud software, you lose access to all of your data. You know, imagine GitHub shut down or Trello shut down or Google Docs even shut down. Those are unlikely because they are such successful products. They're probably going to continue existing for a while. But you could easily imagine a slightly more obscure piece of software that you find very valuable, but maybe not everyone else does. And, and so then the company decides to shut it down and, and now it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And so part of the value we see in peer-to-peer -peer is that it gives you a way for the software to continue working even if all of the cloud services get shut down. And so like probably the way you can get the best reliability is by combining a cloud service and a peer-to-peer -peer network. And so then the peer-to-peer the -peer is there in case the cloud service is unavailable and the cloud service is there in case you can't make the peer-to-peer -peer work. Nice. Actually, uh, Oli posted a link to our internal chat about an issue when we started to uh, talk about collaborative development or like working together on the same document or files. Mm -hmm. It took 16 years. At JetBrains U-Track, it took 16 years to actually uh, deliver something. Well, it's not that they were working on this 16 years. It was actually the, um, there is, it was stale for many years. And uh, recently a few teams started experimenting with different things, different approaches, how to implement this collaboration inside the ID. Mm -hmm. And one of the solutions uh, got picked up and uh, kind of delivered as an early access build right now. Oh, good. So you can you can actually uh, work together with your colleagues in, inside IntelliJ and develop the same code, debug the same code, see like during debug session, you would see all the variables 
thread dumps, whatever you need, you know, like full experience. I have seen the demo of this. I haven't tried myself yet because I don't have a pair Pretty to cool. actually work in the same code base. But this is something that people wanted for many years. I don't really know why they need it, but now it's obvious after all this coronavirus situation got developed since spring and now it became critical. People really need this and even our developers at JetBrains need this. So there is a solution coming and I guess it will be released this year or made publicly available this year. That's great. Makes total sense. I can totally imagine that for two people who are pair programming, for example, they will want to be able to see each other's typing live. You know, Git commits are great, but they are very asynchronous communication mechanisms. So sometimes you want something lower latency. Even screen sharing. I could do a session with via screen sharing with someone and showing, and then the other party would be commenting on what I'm doing and uh, pointing out some of my mistakes. But it wouldn't be like really interactive in a way that he couldn't pick my mouse. And actually, it's possible via team viewer, but it's still not the same experience. Yeah. Yes, you would have one one person who has the like local software experience and the other is looking at it through video conferencing, which might not be quite quite as clear. Mm -hmm. And the remote control of keyboard and mouse may not be the same and so on. So exactly. yeah. I'm not sure about the technical implementation, but I know that the protocol is made uh, open source and is publicly available at JetBrains GitHub account. So it's JetBrains slash RD repository but well it's interesting in a way related to your research with crdts and we can probably move on on that specific topic i i, I honestly don't really know much about crdts and, and i have a few videos to watch in my list mm. uh, on this topic but i'm completely noob in, That's in, fine. in this in this topic yeah you can explain as to uh, five years old. First of all, CRDT stands for conflict-free replicated data types. We need to start somewhere there. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. The idea of conflict-free replicated data types or CRDTs is that you can have a data structure that several people can update concurrently and that then automatically merge those updates together. And so that data structure may be a text document in the case of what you were just explaining with the collaborative code editor. In that case, what the people are editing together is a text document and a text document is just a sequence of characters, right? And so you can insert and delete characters at any point in the text document, but you can also have other CRDTs for other data types. So for example, you can have a set or you could have a counter or you could combine multiple data types into something more complex like a JSON document. And in a JSON document, you can you know, have arbitrarily nested map objects like key value mappings and list objects together with primitive values like strings and booleans and numbers and so on. And the idea of CRDTs is, as I said, you can have several users or several nodes in a distributed system. Each has their own copy of the data in a kind of local first manner like we were discussing. And each user or each node can update their own copy of this data on their local machine without any communication with anyone else. And whenever you make a change, that change is recorded in some way. So 
what we mostly use are operation-based CRDTs, in which case every change is recorded as an operation, which is a, a description of the change, which is like insert the letter A at a particular point in this document, for example. And then when you have a network connection, you can send those operations to anyone else who also has a copy of this document. And the CRDT will figure out how to combine all of the operations that different people have made concurrently into a single consistent view of the document. And so the main consistency guarantee that CRDTs provide is called convergence, which is saying that if two users have seen the same set of operations, then they will be in the same state, even if they saw those operations in a different order. So I will see my changes first and then I'll see your changes second, whereas you saw your own changes first and my changes second. So we're applying the changes in a different order, but what we want to guarantee is that at the end, after everyone has communicated, then everyone has the same document on their screen. Okay. So this behavior of merging the changes is the property of CRDT as such. Exactly. So these are algorithms that are designed in such a way that they can cope with this reordering of changes. They can apply changes in any order and ensure that everybody ends up in, in the same state. And so the way they do this for the mathematically inclined is to make the operations commutative. And so you know, commutative means that you can take two things and do them in either order and the end result is the same. And so in our case of updating a text document, for example, whenever you insert or delete a character and some other user concurrently inserts or deletes some characters, then we add a little bit of metadata to the characters, which allows us to ensure that that the operations have the same effect, even if they are applied in a different order. Mm -hmm. So you said that you add a little bit of metadata. So there is overhead for metadata, right? Yes, absolutely. There is overhead. Mm -hmm. And in fact, producing the amount of overhead is one of our main research topics at the moment. I'm curious about the algorithms, how, how this merging happens. Like if it's just a text document, I can kind of understand, but if it's, uh, if the order is important in which the operations are merged, mm -hmm. so it means that for each use case, there should be a, like a dedicated strategy of merging the sequences of events to get the correct result. Yes. And there's a lot of sort of design that goes into deciding what that strategy should be. What are the semantics that you want? Because you could imagine different ways of resolving a certain editing conflict. And we want to choose one that will hopefully make sense for the users of the system. So basically what may happen there is that inside the metadata that you attach to this change, there might be some uh, information about the priority or the importance of this event compared to the other one. Usually we treat all users as the same. So we don't, we don't set one user's priority higher than another specifically. Not the user, but, but the change, the nature of the change, for instance. Yes, indeed. So let's take an example. You have a Trello board and one user updates the description or that, of the text on one of the cards while concurrently another user deletes that entire card. So what should happen? So one option is that the deletion takes precedence in which case what we're saying is that the, the change to the description that the other user has made 
it might still get applied to the card, but since nobody can see that card anymore because it's been deleted, essentially that change to the description disappears, it's lost. The other alternative you could say is that if somebody updates a card description concurrently with a card being deleted, if you want to preserve the fact that, that this description update take effect, then what you have to do is somehow resurrect the deleted card again, bring back the deleted card so that then people can see the updated description on that card. And so in that case, you would say that the update of the card is taking precedence over the deletion. And which of those two you want is, I'm not quite sure, is it a question of the application, that different applications might want different semantics, or can we choose like one of those as the default, which will probably work for most applications? At the moment, what we've been doing in, in our implementation is to let the deletion take precedence because we feel that this resurrecting deleted objects in order to apply changes within those objects is very confusing. And so it seems that for most applications, actually just having the deletion take precedence is the reasonable thing to do. But certainly it, it requires some very careful thinking about what it is that you actually want in these various situations. So one thing you were interested in is what kind of metadata gets attached mm -hmm. uh, in the case of a text document, for example, and how do we actually do those merges of, of different edits? So mm -hmm. you can imagine when you want to describe a change to a text document, you may say, insert the letter A at index five in the document. And so that is you're counting from the start of the document, first character is index zero, the second one is index one, and so on. So that tells you where to insert this letter. But now, if somebody else concurrently inserts right at the beginning of the document, then index five suddenly refers to a different position in the document. And so one approach that some algorithms have taken is called operational transformation, where we say that, okay, this insertion happened at index five, but concurrently somebody else in inserted two characters at index zero. So this index five now needs to be pushed along too further to take account of the fact that two characters were inserted early in the document. So now we have to transform the index five to index seven uh, for any clients who have applied the insertion to index zero first. And so it does work, but the algorithms get incredibly subtle and you have to be very, very careful uh, to get them right because there are a lot of tricky edge cases there. So that's the operational transformation approach. In contrast to that, the CRDT approach works by attaching a unique identifier to every character in the document. And so in a very simple implementation, you could imagine like literally a UUID, 128 bits you attach to every single character. And then when you want to say, insert the letter A at a particular position in the document, you would say, insert after the letter, the existing letter with UUID something. And this now defines a stable way of addressing a particular position in the document. And even if people delete and insert stuff around it, those unique identifiers for the characters remain fixed. And so therefore it remains a stable way of saying, where do you want your insertion to actually happen? But now you can imagine if you attach 16 bytes of ID to every single character of the document where every character is just one byte for the ASCII character, then, well, you've got a pretty high overhead here. And in fact, some CRDTs have overhead that is even greater than that. Mm -hmm. So the basic first implementation that we did of this for auto-merge 
has an overhead of like somewhere between 100 and 200 bytes per character. So you're increasing the size of your document by a factor of one or 200, which is really not very good. And so what I've been working on recently with some colleagues has been how can we make this more efficient? And we found a way of compressing the metadata so that we still have a unique identifier for every character, but those identifiers are compressed in a clever way using a special application-specific compression scheme. And using that, the overhead is something like one byte per character. And so this means now we've got one byte for the actual ASCII character and one byte for the overhead. That's okay. So we've only doubled the size of our document. That seems like we're now at a place where the overhead is acceptable. I imagine it's not just exactly one-to-one, -one, but it's something like there is a, some constant overhead plus an overhead per character. Exactly. So it's, it's an average or an amortized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one byte per character. And it depends a bit on the editing patterns. So mm -hmm. how good the compression is depends a bit on like how the cursor jumps around and at which, which positions characters get inserted and deleted in the document and so on. But that just that's just to give you a, an idea of the rough order of magnitude. All right. And what is the merging? So how do we do merging of concurrent edits in this case? Mm -hmm. This depends a little bit on the particular CRDT algorithm that you're looking at. And for text editing, there's at least half a dozen or so algorithms that have been proposed in various research papers. One way that you can use, for example, is think of each position in the text document as a fractional number. So say the beginning of the document is zero, the end of the document is one, the middle of the document is 0 0.5, and you can assign to each character some number. And whenever you want to insert a character between two existing characters, you just pick a number that's halfway between the two existing characters' numbers and use that as the identifier for the new character. And so this way, now your insertions, they choose some kind of number between zero and one. You need arbitrary precision numbers for this, of course, because you might keep inserting in the same interval. And so you have to keep adding digits at the end of your numbers. But assuming you, know, you can make these, these numbers arbitrarily long, then this gives you a way of defining exactly at which position an insertion happened. And now if two users insert characters concurrently at different positions in the document, then that's fine because they will be subdividing those intervals of numbers at different places. So they will be generating numbers in different subranges. And so all you need to do at the end is take all of your characters, sort them by ascending number, and then you will have the document. You'll have the characters in the same order as they appear in the document. Now, it's a little bit more tricky if two users are inserting at the same position. So if two users position their character at exactly the same place and then concurrently start typing, because now the number that the two users pick might be the same, because you know they're inserting somewhere between 0.74 and 0.76. So they both pick 0.75 as the midpoint. And now you have two characters with the same number, and then you don't know in which order you should put them. So in that case, you need a tiebreaker, which usually might be something like a unique identifier for each user. And then you'll say, okay, well, if we have two users generating characters with exactly the same number as second degree sorting, we will look at the, those user IDs of the two users and we'll put the character inserted by the user with the lower ID first and with the higher ID second, something like that. And that way then ensures that everybody puts the inserted characters in the same place. 
that's just talking about inserting in text documents now. Now you also need to handle deletion. But deletion is usually easier. One approach that some CRDTs use is to not actually delete stuff from the document, but just to mark characters as deleted. And this is called a tombstone in the literature. And so in this case, the deleted parts of the document actually remain invisible as part of the, the application state. And then, it, you know, there are some garbage collection protocols potentially to get rid of that metadata eventually. This depends a bit on the algorithm of how precisely this is done. Interesting. I'd like to turn this a little bit differently now. So when you are dealing with some topic in your research or at your work and you know how the things are working like inside out, then kind of inevitably you start thinking of other things that kind of work in the same area and you start analyzing them without, you know, any goal. But when you are using them, you're you kind of, you would see that they work somehow differently. So did it change for you when you started working on this research and now you know this inside out, say, when you work with Google Docs or when you work with any other services, do you notice how they work, like the behavior or user experience that they provide? Is it something that you notice and start analyzing, like, you know, implicitly in your head when, when you're using those? I certainly think a lot about the edge cases now, which you might not necessarily if you're just using the software. So, so for example, a, a little while ago, I started using Notion for, for keeping notes. And with Notion, you can synchronize your notes across multiple devices. And so I was interested, okay, what happens if I edit a note on my computer and edit the same note on my phone, maybe while the phone is in airplane mode or something like that. And then, and it allows those edits because it allows offline working. And then I turn the network back on again and let them synchronize and see what happens. Of course, I have to try that. Um, mm -hmm. And to be honest, a lot of applications don't handle it very nicely. I think in the case of Notion, it breaks uh, the text into blocks or like paragraphs. And mm -hmm. I think if you're editing two different paragraphs on the two devices, then it's fine. They get merged. But if you edit the same paragraph on two different devices concurrently, well, then actually it's just going to throw away one of your edits, I believe. So that's not so great. I, I would rather have a CRDT there, which preserves all of my changes and makes sure that no edits get lost in the process. But I guess they're not using uh, this particular mm -hmm. technology. Well, another interesting one is I was playing around with a Google spreadsheet. And one thing you can have with a spreadsheet is two people updating the same cell in a spreadsheet. Now, this is different from two people editing the same sentence in a text document. Because in a text document, you generally we model the changes as inserting and deleting characters. We don't really replace one character with another. If we select something and then overwrite it, we're not actually overwriting the characters, we're deleting the old characters and inserting new characters. Mm -hmm. But in a spreadsheet, it's different because in a spreadsheet, you're replacing the contents of a cell with different contents. And you know, you're not inserting new cells, you're not moving them left or right, the cell remains in the same position. And so you can have really interesting edge cases that happen there. Take, for example, this one, we have two users, you and me, I set cell A1 to the value one, then you go and set the same cell to the value two. Then I set this, that same cell to the value three, you set the cell to the value four. 
now I press undo, what should happen? So I can see the value four, but my recent edit changed the value from two to three, whereas your most recent edit changed the value from three to four. So when I press undo, do I expect the value to go back to three, which was undoing your last edit, or do I expect the value to go back to two, which was the prior state before my last edit, or do I expect the value to go back to one even, which was the result of my previous edit to the one that I undid. So you can make a reasonable argument for all three of these different potential outcomes of what should happen just if I press undo once. Well, you can try it out just by starting a spreadsheet on two different computers, setting one of them into airplane mode, um, making exactly that sequence of edits and, and see what happens. Actually, this one is even simple because there's not even any concurrency going on. I'm making those updates sequentially. Uh, you have it even more tricky if you can actually have people updating the same cell concurrently. Even the simplest case is, is tricky enough to break the head, but then if you go even more complex to even more complex scenarios, then it's like, what should happen? Maybe this is where the vendors or the creators of the services would just, you know, say, okay, it doesn't work. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, yeah, I know that at Figma, which is designer tool, mm -hmm. you, before you can do undo, you have to ask your peer to undo their changes. Oh, really? So they will undo, yes, if they will undo their changes and you are in a state which you changed last, then you can do your undo. Oh, wow. That's, I, I hadn't realized that. That's, that's quite demanding of users because, you know, what if your colleague has now gone on holiday and they're not going to come back for another two weeks? And so now you can't undo for another two weeks. That's not, not necessarily a great user experience. It sounds very much like a CVS a version control system with locking mm -hmm. the files. Mm, exactly. Like that. I, I would see that kind of as a form of locking where you're essentially giving only one user exclusive permission to perform the undo in this case. Right. No, that's interesting. I, sh I should try Figma. I've not actually tried it before, but I'm aware that they've, they've done some quite interesting work on real-time collaboration and they've written some good blog posts on the topic as well. That's true. Right. We could move on to the next topic, actually, I think. Sure. That was your keynote last year on, at Kafka Summit. Mm -hmm. Was it in London? Or? I think I gave the, the same talk twice, once in San Francisco and once in London. All right. The title was, Is Kafka Data-Based? Hmm. Slightly provocative title. Yeah, it was an interesting clickbait, <laughs> almost. <laughs> it was definitely an interesting talk. And I had a moment when I was like, I was following really well. I, I could understand everything. And then when you were talking about atomicity moving to to the next topic, isolation, this is where I, I kind of find myself lost a little bit, where you say, like, there, there is an example, interesting example of uh, transferring the balance, like transferring money from one account to another. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is uh, an example of, like, uh, there is an event coming in saying that there is a transfer from one account to another one, and then there is a stream processor that would issue two events one is saying debit, the other one is saying credit. And then how this 
is atomic in a way, like how, how it could become atomic or there was like a smooth move from this example to the isolation there where you say that it's not atomicity, but it's rather a problem of concurrency that someone would see one account updated and the other account not updated. Mm -hmm. So I was like thinking, oh, this is what, what I have to really watch again because <laughs> well, at some time I, I somehow lost and I was watching carefully. But that's really an interesting example and like how to think about this streaming and messaging in a way that it actually behaves like a database. Yes. Shall I briefly recap the talk maybe mm -hmm. for listeners who haven't seen the talk? Yes, yes, that would be nice. So it started from the premise that uh, databases are wonderful. We do a lot of things with databases, but there are some things that databases are not very good at. And one of those things is if you want to make your data in the database synchronized or reflected with data in some external data system. And so one example of this would be, say, you have an Elasticsearch full text index to allow you to do full text search on the data inside your database. Now, your data is stored once in your database and once in your search index. And these two things have to be kept in sync. And so this is nice if you have a database that supports full text search indexing internally within the database. Not all databases do that. And even those that do might not be as customizable as a specialized full text search index. And so many users' applications and systems do actually end up duplicating this kind of data in the database and the search index. And the mechanisms that databases provide for actually making this external system, this search index, consistent with the data in the database, the mechanisms for that are pretty immature and poorly developed. And so my starting point for this talk was now, well, what if we actually represent all of our rights to this system as a whole, so all of the rights to both the database and the search index, if we represent those as a stream of events, and we can do that with something like Apache Kafka, and then we can take those, those events that represent updates to some, some piece of data stored in the database and in the search index, and we apply those updates by having the stream of events consumed by both the database and the search index. And so this then ensures that all of the changes are reflected accurately in both. And moreover, we can use the ordering properties of Kafka to ensure that the updates are applied in the same order to the database and the search index, which ensures that then, you know, if you have two different updates that have to always be in the same order because they, like, one sets the value to A, the next update sets the value to B, you have to make sure that the final value is B in both systems. So you need to make sure that these two updates are applied in the same order on both systems, unless they are CRDTs, of course, but most databases and search indexes are not CRDTs, so they can't cope with this reordering of updates. So that was the starting point. Say, okay, we can actually integrate databases and search indexes and other systems better if we start with this stream of events. And now, if you have this stream of events in something like Kafka, can we actually take this further? And what I wanted to do in, in this talk is just kind of to see how far we can push this idea before it breaks. So how far can we push this idea of saying that our stream of events is our primary data storage and 
any databases and indexes and caches that we look at, they are just derived views onto our stream of events. And the point I was trying to make now in this talk was that actually a lot of the strong properties that you expect of databases, so that is the asset properties, that is you have atomicity, which is that you don't get any like half committed transactions, a transaction either fully takes effect or not. You have consistency, which is kind of poorly defined, so I'll skip that. You have isolation, which is essentially saying that you don't have race conditions and other weird concurrency problems in the system. And finally, durability, which is that like you don't lose data, even in the case of a crash. And so we can actually implement things that resemble all of these asset properties of databases. We can implement similar things on top of just an event log. So even though an event log is a much simpler basic abstraction, you know, it's essentially just an append-only file with some replication, it's much simpler than a database, but we can actually build things that look very much like serializable database transactions. We can build those on top of the event log. And that's how we got then into this example of the account where you have, for example, you want to do a bank transfer from one account to another account. You have to make sure that those two things happen atomically, that is debiting one account, crediting the other account. If only one of those two things happened, then you would be either having disappearing money or money created out of nowhere either of which is very desirable. So we want atomicity in order to ensure that both the credit and debit either both happen or don't happen. And moreover, you might want serializable isolation because you might, for example, want to guarantee that an account balance can never go negative. And so this requires then a check on the source account of the transaction to see that it has enough funds to do the transaction. And so I then, in this talk, outlined some ways of how you could actually use just simply an event log and some stream processors in order to implement this kind of check that an account balance will never go negative just by using the ordering properties of the log and sending messages, consuming messages from the log, checking some states and then sending them back into the log by, by doing these kind of cycles of messages, you can actually implement something that looks quite like database transactions on top of just uh, an event log. Mm -hmm. It even looks more reliable than the two-phase commit, the distributed transactions that we mm -hmm. used to try to implement in the early 2000s. Mm. At least I had some experience implementing those and I, it, I could never get them right or work reliably, I would say. And this idea looks simpler and more reliable in, compared to... Well, it's probably related also to the fact that the way you explained it, sounds more clear and simpler and more understandable than our knowledge about distributed transactions, which are complex and we probably don't know how they actually worked. Mm. Yes, distributed transactions have had all sorts of problems. So I should clarify, like there are some distributed databases that have built-in transaction support and that can work quite well as long as you're doing the distributed transaction just within a single database system. But if you are integrating like a database and a search index, for example, in many cases, distributed transactions won't even be available because something like Elasticsearch does not support two-phase commit. And so that possibility is out of the window straight away. So you can't do two-phase commit across your database and your Elasticsearch. But even in those systems that do support it, there are all sorts of operational problems with trying to make two-phase commit actually work reliably. And mm -hmm. you know the, the classic one is coordinator failure. So if you're transaction coordinator crashes, then you can end up with 
databases and other systems not knowing what the outcome of a transaction is, whether it should be committed or aborted. And so you end up with these, these pending transactions sitting around there, holding locks on the database and not being able to make any progress. And this, this is a really serious problems for the operation of these systems. This was part of my reason for wanting to propose this approach based on event logs, because event logs are just a, a lot simpler. You don't get exactly the same as you get from two-phase commits. There are subtle differences. But the uh, event log gets you a long way down that path towards the sort of cross-data system reliable commit that you want. And so in many cases, I think you can replace two-phase commit with something like an event log quite effectively. I see. Well, yeah, like the video or like the talk, I would say this is one of the videos I would like to rewatch again because well, I have two types. I have a, like a long queue of those videos they want to watch. Uh, some of them I would watch one time and some of them I would uh, keep like in the other queue to rewatch again. This is a talk that I would recommend putting in the other queue for rewatching after some time and reminding those ideas again. At the end of the talk, you were mentioning the article at acm.org mm -hmm. uh, about online event processing. I opened the article and I couldn't find time to actually read it through. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit as well, if you could give us uh, an overview of this topic a little bit. Yeah, the article is essentially the, the same as the talk. It goes into a little bit uh -huh. more detail, but the, the thesis is the same. So the article is called Online Event Processing. It's a bit of a pun on online transaction processing, OLTP, and online analytical processing, OLAP. And in this article, we propose that really we should think of event streaming as like almost a third paradigm for data storage, data systems. Besides OLAP uh, and OLTP, we can have OLEP, which is the online event processing. And uh, the article then explains some patterns of why this might be useful like exactly the search index example that we've been discussing and how you can implement certain patterns for getting things that like in a database you would do with serializable asset transactions, how you can do those kind of things on top of event logs as your underlying abstraction. I see. So is there another book coming soon on online events, I know, transaction processing, I think everybody would be excited. Maybe, yes. I, I'm not sure. It's an area that needs a little bit more time, I think, for people to digest the ideas and to actually try it and, and see how it works. So I've seen this pattern work quite well at some organizations. So I think one of the examples cited in, the, in that article is from the New York Times, where they built an archive of the entire public article publishing history all the way back to when the newspaper was founded in the 1850s or something like that. They have all of the articles, the full text of those, just simply in one single event log. Mm -hmm. And the amount of data is, is small enough that that's manageable. You know, it's, it's less than 100 gigs, I think. And because they have it all in event log, and every time an article gets published, it just gets add, appended to the end of that log. And it means that if you want to do things like build a new search index, that becomes really simple. Or if you want to train a new recommendation systems to like suggest articles to readers that they might be interested in, you can just consume that entire log of events, feed them into your new data processing systems, and then as new 
articles get published, they just keep getting appended to the end of the log and any subscribers to that log will get notified and will update accordingly then. And so for them, this was a very successful way of simplifying their systems. They previously had a whole bunch of different systems that all used various ad hoc synchronization mechanisms to get data from one to the other. And so they were able to simplify it a lot just by building upon this event log abstraction. What I'm not sure yet is, is how widely generalizable this example is. So it worked well for the New York Times. Will it also work well for many other organizations? And of course, the, the people building Kafka and so on are now going quite far in terms of getting tools like Kafka adopted widely within many different organizations. But to be honest, it's, it's not an, an area that I've been actively working on recently, since I've mostly moved my focus over to CRDTs and collaboration software. So I probably won't be writing very much about this topic in the near future, just because other people are working on that now and, and I've moved on to, to different topics. So I might come back to it again in the future. I see. Well, that's, that was a very interesting example uh, of real life application, definitely. I guess we are out of topics now and uh, we can wrap it up here. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's been really nice talking to you both. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you too for having me.